Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. I have Alicia Weeks with Niche Therapy joining me. I'm going to just go on record by saying that uh, if you've listened to any of our other previous podcasts, you know that Alicia is my son, Caleb, speech language pathologist, and she is amazing. Um, So we're talking today on the topic of of expressive and receptive language, and we're also going to talk a little bit about body language and why body language is sometimes uh, challenging for individuals on the autism spectrum to translate and even be able to use themselves, you know, using body language to communicate. We play this game actually with Caleb where um, I actually do several things. One is Caleb, what's the message of my face? Um, And then also uh, he'll try and use some body language and facial effects for me. And I'm like, oof. I think what you're trying to tell me is blah, blah, blah. So it is definitely when you're working with the autism population, it's something that doesn't come naturally. When we talk about body language, it's something that we have to practice and um, decipher and learn. And so we're going to talk just a little bit about that, just because we are talking about language and body language is a part of that. So let's start with... um, Alicia, I hope you don't mind, but we, before we hit the record button, we were talking a little bit just about definitions. And so, because, you know, I, I, I'm a big, big believer in let's just keep it simple. Um, you know, apraxia is a term that's used a lot in speech language pathology. And I just want to make sure that parents understand, like, what does apraxia mean? Sure. So apraxia is a disorder of like execution of speech. So it's, you're, child, if they have a proxy, is able to hear and understand everything you're saying. But when they go to say it, the sounds come out out of sequence within a word, or they might make incorrect sounds within that word. So instead of saying banana, you might say abama. Um, so you're getting most of the correct sounds, but they're in the wrong sequence. And then, you know, that pronunciation might change as they continue to try to practice it. But with apraxia, they're able, a person with apraxia is able to put their articulators, so put their teeth and their lips and their tongue in the right place. They're just not doing that in the right sequence. So can I use an analogy that in my mind, when I think of apraxia, it's almost like dyslexia. People know dyslexia because it's getting the letters out of order. This is basically that same concept, but it's the oral sounds of how the sounds Mm -hmm. come out that get jumbled. And so I always think of this as dyslexia when it comes to oral sound. Is that like a good analogy? I think that's a wonderful analogy. One of the core deficits in dyslexia is sequencing. Um, So it, it does have a lot to do with 
you know, obviously we know that dyslexia is challenges with reading and writing, but a lot of the writing challenges or even speaking challenges that we see associated with dyslexia have to do with doing things out of order, saying things out of order, having difficulty telling a story in order. So it's those larger parts of language. Um, So your words and sentences are out of order, where apraxia would be smaller parts of language, your sounds are out of order. Yeah. So when we talk about uh, apraxia is actually more common than what we would actually think. Um, And we tend to see it a lot in our world at the Isaac Foundation, because it is something, you know, part of an autism spectrum diagnosis is um, communication struggles. And so apraxia, we see a fair amount, um, because that has to do with expressive, our expressive language, correct? Yes. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, it's, it's fairly common to then no one is surprised to see or know that apraxia is a part of a diagnosis that we often then see associated with uh, kiddos that are on the autism spectrum, but probably other uh, diagnoses as well. So do you see apraxia present in kids with cerebral palsy, with uh, Down syndrome? It's not just isolated to autism spectrum disorders, correct? No, it's its its own diagnosis and it can co-occur. As far as I know, I think it can co-occur with pretty much anything. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it's not surprising that it's something that you guys are seeing a lot because it is very noticeable, um, you know, more so than an articulation disorder. So with an articulation disorder, that's when um, the individual physically is not putting their articulators, so their lips, their teeth, and their tongue in the right place to produce the right sound. So that's where when we hear kids say, Wat instead of rat. So they're making that W sound instead of their R sound. That's not always as noticeable. Those kids are, a, you're more able to understand someone with an articulation disorder than if you have an individual with, um, you know, sometimes we call it childhood apraxia of speech if it occurs in children or just apraxia of speech um, if it continues beyond a certain point or if it shows up because of, you know, a stroke or something like that. But it's very, noticeable when you are speaking to someone who has, you know, not or started treatment for apraxia of speech. Early on when my son Isaac got his diagnosis of understand that with my son Isaac, we had uh, a lot of expressive and receptive language processing. I was explaining to Alicia before we've gone live, we went live and, and I've mentioned this in several other podcasts, but originally Isaac was identified because they thought he was profoundly hard of hearing. So Isaac at the age of uh, 17 months was wearing hearing aids because they were convinced that he was like deaf. Um, And so it was, it was through his uh, auditory brainstem response test so that they could program his hearing aids that they actually found out that his hearing was normal. And so um, what ended up happening was the audiologist that was working with us uh, emailed a bunch of colleagues around the United States. And one doctor responded from the East Coast saying that he had seen one child that presented profoundly hard, hard of hearing, but had a normal ABR, auditory brainstem response test. And that child went on to be diagnosed with autism. So Isaac had been studied early on a lot because for him, he was unique in the sense that he, it was almost like having a child that spoke a different language. We would talk and talk and talk, and he understood nothing of what we were trying to say to him. So receptively, he wasn't 
all the words coming in, he didn't know what to do with. He didn't know how to organize them. He didn't know how to associate those with certain things. So we would use one word, maybe two words. And we used a lot of uh, pictures um, for him. Pex is what we called him, picture exchange, so that he could understand what we were talking about. And so um, we did hear that he definitely had apraxia because when he would go to say words, couldn't understand them very much what you're saying when you would say a banana it was this garbly gook of some similar sounds and that was really how we had to try and figure out and decipher what he was trying to tell us because you're basically picking out some sounds and then looking around and seeing what sounds those may associate with which is definitely that apraxia at the time I was heartbroken because in my mind um, apraxia just seemed like an overwhelming thing are we ever going to be able to help him get past this and be able to use functional language um, he did sign a bit he um, we were he again because of you know autism spectrum disorder gestural communication was obviously delayed significantly so it was a lot of meltdowns crying tantrums because he was so frustrated frustrated. And what was difficult for him is not only could he not articulate and get us to understand what he was wanting, but then too, he didn't understand what anybody was wanting of him. So, you know, transitions were really hard, you know, everything in the world was a whole series of unknowns. And so the pictures definitely helped him to understand and be able to, um, you know, be somewhat informed. So we had to show him pictures of everything because didn't matter what we told him, he wasn't understanding what was happening. Now, as I've moved into and become more of a, um, a veteran autism parent, I feel like apraxia is not as scary because to me, it just seems so overwhelming that, oh my gosh, how do you teach a child and, and help their brain learn how to put the sounds in the correct order so that they can get that articulation out to meaningfully communicate. Because it sounds overwhelming to me, but really actually that's what you guys do. This is something that you guys have great strategies to help them move past through apraxia to be effective and solid communicators, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So what there type are of things do you do? Sorry, there are, well, there are protocols of how you can work with individuals with um, apraxia of speech, but I'd say kind of the, the overview of all of them is there's going to be some form of, you know, potentially there's some form of tactile cueing. So you're doing some physical touching or the child is doing physical touching of their own face to cue certain sounds and certain orders. Actually, I was just watching a training uh, last week on childhood apraxia of speech. And there's a whole, I don't know this system, but there's a whole system of tactile cueing. So when the speech therapist is getting the child ready to say a certain word or to say a certain phrase, they're physically touching their face to help cue what sounds come next. That is um, so true. I so remember the, all of that, Alicia. And here's what's funny is Isaac would then, he knew, it was like he knew what he wanted to say. So he would start touching those parts mm -hmm. of his face because I think he was trying to, that was him like getting ready to then try and use some of those words. So you're absolutely right. He would touch parts of his face mm -hmm. um, when he was making certain, trying to make certain sounds. But he learned that from a lot of repetition from his speech language pathologists at the time. Yeah. And I think with, with uh, childhood apraxia speech, as with most things that we do in speech language pathology, tons and tons and tons of repetition. So you're working on, you know, hopefully the speech language pathologist is helping your child say things that are meaningful for them. So in this video that I watched, it was helping the child say happy birthday to their mom. 
And it was, you know, they kind of gave a little preface of like, it's the mom's birthday in like a month. So we've been practicing doing this so that this child can independently and successfully say happy birthday to their mom. That was something that was important to them. But yeah, so hopefully you're, you're training those phrases or training those, those different sequences of language. Um, so it's meaningful. And I think at some point you can fade that face touching or tactile cueing to like, you know, doing little sequences on your fingers and things like that. So it's less obvious um, or less apparent. But yeah, now, here's it's a long therapy road. Oh, sorry. Oh, ahead. it is. But it's not, it's not insurmountable. It's just a long therapy road. It's going to be many years of um, work with a professional to work beyond that. But this is bringing back so many of my memories. Now, one thing that was always really interesting is, is that Isaac never actually called me like mama or anything like that, because again, it would, and what his approximations of mama, like I, I felt like he was trying to say mama, but they weren't always the same. And so is that mm -hmm. normal? Because it wasn't like he came up with a, you know, ohm, like for mom, mm -hmm. it was always, it was different. Like, and so I just would take several interpretations of him. So is that fairly normal where it's not that it's even consistent each time they try and say banana or dog or yep. mom? Yes. Yeah. And that's exactly. So it, um, with childhood apraxia speech or apraxia speech that that sequencing isn't going to have the same type of error every time. So that's kind of going back to like an articulation disorder. When you have an articulation disorder, that mispronunciation is going to show up the same every time. So if your kid says, you know, wog for dog, every time they see a dog, they're going to say wog um, with an articulation disorder. If you have uh, apraxia of speech, you might hear gog, cog, you know, good like it, it's going to change and that vowel mm -hmm. can even change. But so there's, um, yeah, that, that error pattern is really pretty inconsistent. Yeah. The only thing that was ever pretty consistent was, um, was for Tyler. He would just make a, t t and that was his version <laughs> of Tyler. It was t like his T. So, but yeah, it was interesting because I couldn't even tell you that, oh, when he makes this sound, this is the word approximation because it just, that wasn't the way that it worked. It was always so variable. So Thank you. This is just a nice little trip down memory lane for me because it's all coming back. What other forms of expressive language challenges? So we talked about apraxia, which is an expressive um, language processing. We obviously talked about articulation that is expressive. Mm -hmm. Are there other factors that then jump into that like category of expressive language challenges? I would say another big one, and this can be both a receptive and expressive language challenge is phonological processing. So one thing that we, we as speech language, just, excuse me, speech language pathologists know and think about is this phonological patterns. And so phonological patterns are changing either the syllable structure of the word or changing the sound pattern within a word. And those there's like, I don't remember exactly how many, but there's like seven common ones and 14, you know, total. That's not probably the right number, but it's something like that, you know, and hey, we're just talking about approximations. We don't have to be perfect <laughs> right? in these yeah. podcasts, Alicia. We're fine. Oh, we're thank fine. you. I, I'm like, oh no, someone's, someone's going to grade me on this. <laughs> this is not weird. Nobody's grading you. We're just grateful that you give your time to <laughs> your podcast and give us information. So thank you. Yeah. So there are these different phonological patterns and as children age and as they develop their speech, you'll start to see those phonological patterns drop off. So they won't produce them anymore. So an example would be something called 
fronting is one where they're making all the speech sounds in the front of their mouth. So they can't produce any K's, they can't produce any G's, but they want to switch everything to B's and D's. So I'm like, what's a good word to say that isn't hard for me to say? Um, If they were trying to say can, they might say ban. So that's fronting. There's also backing, which is the opposite of that, where instead of making speech sounds in the front of your mouth, you're making all your speech sounds in the back of your mouth. So instead of saying bug, you might want to say cug. So you're, again, moving it to the back of your mouth. And then the other thing with phonological patterns is that you can drop syllables out of words or switch syllables around. So kids saying paschetti or aminol, those are some of those phonological patterns. Saying apo instead of apple, that's another Mm -hmm. one. It's called vocalization. So you're changing a consonant sound to a vowel sound. But anyway, so that's kind of another realm of expressive language disorder. And the thing that's really, you know, fun and interesting about being a speech language pathologist or a parent is you can have all of these happening at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, with with some of the kids that I've worked with in the past with dyslexia, they they have an articulation disorder, a phonological processing disorder and childhood apraxia of speech all at the same time. And that makes, you know, obviously there's a lot of frustration caused by, you know, the inability for them to communicate frustration between, you know, them and their parents with parents just not understanding what their child is saying. Yeah. So those are kind of the big three that I live in the world with, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously there are, there are other things. There's um, a whole realm of dysarthrias, which are motor planning issues that can, they all stem from the brain. And there's, we were talking about it earlier. There's like seven types of dysarthria that are, you know, caused by like cerebral palsy might have dysarthria. After you have a stroke, you might have dysarthria. And that's like a muscle planning issue or a muscle movement issue. Um, And again, there's a bunch of different kinds that are caused by different illnesses or, or disorders or um, I'm so glad that you injuries. said the word first because I had to write down <laughs> how I was going to say that word if it came to me first. So I'm so glad that you said that word first, dysarthria. Oh, so yes, yeah. and then there's also aphasia, which oh. for the most part with kids we're not dealing with. But that's not to say that that's not something that doesn't happen in children. So aphasia, there's fluent aphasia and non-fluent aphasia. Aphasia is, you know, I just think about it as word finding difficulty. And so non, I think it's, I get them mixed up, but I think it's non-fluent aphasia is when you have someone who maybe is recovering from a stroke and they are looking at you like they are speaking and there is just nonsense coming out of their mouth. So that's, that's again, another just example of expressive language disorder. So there's what we've talked about, apraxia, phonological, articulation, aphasia, and dysarthria. Well, and aphasia sounds familiar to me because again, when I, now keep in mind, Isaac would be turning 18 this year. So this was very early on and he was a bit of an anomaly because no one had ever seen a child present like him where he literally acted and presented as though he was profoundly hard of hearing. And I do remember, you know, aphasia uh, brought out there because they were trying to figure out and give us an explanation as to why 
he wasn't able to process and understand the words. And he, it's like, he couldn't even find the words that he needed to try and communicate a need and a want. Um, and again, when you think about expressive language processing, I mean, imagine that you're living in a world where you have needs, wants, likes, desires, and it's not coming out and people don't understand what you're saying and, or what you want or what you need or an idea in your head that you're trying to describe. So is it really that shocking to see that uh, communication challenges lead to behaviors, meltdowns, anxiety, um, that failure complex where they don't even want to try because they just feel like it's going to be pointless? It all goes hand in hand in terms of self-esteem issues and anxiety and behaviors. And, and so now I want to talk about receptive language processing, because this is what you, your brain is soaking in and translating. And so we're going to talk about, we just talked about kind of the just different expressive language challenges. So I wanted to pop over with the receptive language processing and talk about some of those, those categories, if you will. Okay. Receptive language challenges. So there's, you know, we were talking earlier about central auditory processing disorder, which is a somewhat controversial disorder in the field of speech language pathology. Um, and I do love talking about controversial stuff. So <laughs> I'm loving that we're bringing this up because we talked about this before we hit the record button. And I just love the fact that even in your field, there's like, you know, researchers, you know, your SLP researchers that believe central auditory processing disorder is a thing and mm -hmm. they're dedicating their profession to researching and um, documenting it. And then... You have the other end of the spectrum where they're just like, nope, don't think it's, it's ADHD. ADHD. So that's another thing where people are like, no, it's just ADHD. Um, so it's, you know, it, it is, it is controversial. It's, you know, so central auditory processing disorder, um, also known as CAPD. So people may have heard CAPD thrown around is the way I explained it to Holly earlier and, and kind of the way that I think about receptive language disorders as a whole is that, you know, rather than hearing words come at you and being able to sort them and prioritize them and process them as they're coming in, it's basically like being hit with a wall of sound. And rather than being able to, you know, pick out like, okay, this is an important detail. This is an important fact. This person has said this thing over and over again. Maybe I should listen to it. It's just kind of like all of this noise is coming in. I can hear everything. It's not a difficulty with hearing but I don't know what to do with all of this language. So I, you know, in my, my own thinking, I've kind of linked central auditory processing disorder and a receptive language disorder. The other piece of receptive language, and actually we for, I forgot to mention this in expressive language, is written language. So oh, yes. Kind How of could we have forgotten that? That's a big deal. Right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So dysgraphia is a yeah. disorder of written language. So your expressive language when writing is, is challenged. Your handwriting is challenging. Your ability to organize your thoughts and ideas are challenging. But same thing with receptive language. So we can have, you know, obviously that hearing piece, organizing piece, understanding piece can be impacted. And then we also have disorders where our ability to read and understand what we read are impacted. And that's where I spend a lot of my time with dyslexia and difficulty with reading comprehension and things like that. So yeah, I 
from what I remember, you know, there are obviously different categories of receptive language, but they're not as explicit as the expressive expressive. language. I would Mm -hmm. agree because when I was prepping for this particular podcast, I was trying to have kind of little buckets and things I wanted to make sure that I asked you about so I could, you know, dazzle people with my knowledge of speech language pathology, but you're absolutely right. In expressive language, there's definitely more subsets of very specific um, challenges when it comes to expressive language. It was much harder to actually delineate like areas uh, under receptive language, other than it just has to do with understanding whether Mm -hmm. it's written, like written words or auditory words coming into the brain. And we're going to talk about Caleb here just for a second, because he's mine and we get to talk about him and It's always great when we have a a person in in common that we can talk about. Caleb is actually a unique um, cat in that he, he's not unique in the sense, I think there's a lot of kids out there that have an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis that both trouble, have trouble with receptive and expressive language. And you have talked, and I'm going to just make a shameless plug for your clinic right now. One, Caleb has dysgraphia and I had someone contact the office because they had listened to a podcast that we had done. And we had talked about dysgraphia, about screening. How do I get my child? screen from dysgraphia. And, and that is something that you can do. But part of what it is, is it has to do with writing samples. We just had our IEP and he had to have his reevaluation with the school psychologist. And I just said, Hey, I need you to pull some of Caleb's writing samples. If you don't have any, let me provide them for you. Because one of his accommodations is he's able to type his homework and Obviously, in virtual learning world right now, that has been a godsend and we haven't had to fight because that's just how all kids have to do things. Mm-hmm. When we were in the classroom, Alicia, you know this, it was a real struggle with some teachers allowing him to type his homework and submit it electronically because his ability to type out his thoughts is much easier than him to be able to get pen to paper. So can you kind of talk about this? Because I've mentioned this before, even in a parent, you know, parent group about, well, how can they type? How come typing is so much better than handwriting? So can you just talk to that a little bit? Because I know it is kind of a little mind blowing, like how can one be an easier output than the other, but it is a thing. Well, with, with typing, you have letters in front of you. So you are not having to generate the letter in your brain and get it out through your hand. Um, So in terms of working memory, that is a huge boost to working memory. So working memory is basically our capacity to think and retrieve knowledge and like do things simultaneously. So when we're writing, when we're handwriting, we are having to Think of the letters and what they look like. Think of the spelling. Think about the spacing between words. Think about what word goes next in the sentence. What word did I just write previously? You know, how does the sentence fit in with my paragraph? How does this paragraph fit with my essay? You know, so it's it's this huge cognitive burden um, that we're we're trying to put our brain through. When we're typing, we're taking away some of those lower levels. So, like when you're typing. You don't have to think about spelling to the same extent because you have spell check on most, you know, I'm going to call them word processors, but on, you know, on your computer and you have the letters written there for you. You don't have to worry about your handwriting or what your letters look like. You have a space bar that puts the same amount of space between your words every single time. You know, one thing that's a big red flag for dysgraphia, if you're worried your child has dysgraphia, if they write and everything on the line looks like it's just one word, you know, that's that's a big thing. The other thing with typing is that 
you don't have to think about where in space you are writing. That's another thing that we'll see with dysgraphia is that that they're starting to write like in the middle of the page and then writing all the way over past the margin to like the very end of the page. And then the next thing's like three lines down and it's over in this other quadrant. Yeah, again, with typing, all of that is formatted for you. It's controlled for you. Yes, yes. it's a beautiful thing. The other thing I love about this too, and uh, Alicia and I have noted this in the past is that editing for mistakes when when you're doing written writing is much harder because again, They're having to focus on so many other things. Are they really thinking about whether or not the proper noun is, you know, capitalized? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so their, their grammar is oftentimes um, delayed because again, they have to do a whole lot of proofreading. And then when they're going back and rereading and proofreading their own work, it's much harder because their brain is trying to interpret their own writing. But the beautiful yeah. thing about the, the the typing, the type print is, is that also there's grammar checks. So it will highlight mm-hmm. things for Caleb that he needs to then go back and give some attention to. And it's so interesting is, is if you have his something that's handwritten and he's having to go back and edit, it's still very difficult for him to figure out where to put a period, where he needs to capitalize, what is a com or you know a proper noun, um, versus when he has it in in on his processor, he he's much faster. And usually he gets more of the punctuation first time mm-hmm. versus the going back and doing the edit. And then it gives him a cue. So he's still it, it highlights it in blue, I think is what it is. And so then he has to go back and look at it and decide, oh, oh, you know what, sorry, that should have been capitalized. You know, when he puts United States, lowercase, and then it's in blue, he knows, oh, I got to go, I got to go back and fix that. And so mm-hmm. it's just kind of a visual, visual cue for him that he needs to spend some attention. And the reality of this is, is that we all do it. I still do it as an adult where I'm going back and it's like, oh, it's underlying this word in red. I must have spelled it wrong. And so yeah. again, it's an accommodation, but his time spent editing handwritten work versus typewritten work and, and what, what he can catch the first time around is much, much different um, depending on whether or not he's typing or he's, or he's handwriting. And Caleb is now in the seventh grade. And, and I would say if you're looking at his writing samples, and we can be honest here, Alicia, because we love Caleb and he doesn't mind us using him um, to help educate the masses. But I would say he probably looks like he's maybe third, fourth grade level with his handwriting. Yeah. And maybe I'm being generous because now that I'm thinking about it, it might even not even be so that that high. But um, I think it and depends a, on the day. <laughs> depends yes, on the day. Depends right. on the context of the writing. Absolutely, you're so right. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that we went back and talked about dysgraphia because I get a lot of people and. And that is at least my my plug for your clinic is is that and you and your and your profession you are able to if a family has a concern that their child may have dysgraphia that is something that you could do an assessment and determine whether or not that child meets the criteria for dysgraphia. Yes. Yeah. 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 We can. And do we, that. I think the unfortunate part of that, just to give full disclosure, is that insurance companies do not always recognize no. dysgraphia as a language disorder. Um, yeah. So you may run into challenges with that. Um, actually, Getting the in, assessment. Mm-hmm. For, and yeah. even in the CPT codes, so the codes that we're using to, you know, code for diagnosis within our system, dysgraphia isn't one. So it's there's like sensory a, processing disorder. There's no CPT code specific, for sensory processing. Yeah. There's yeah. specific learning disorder with impairment in written expression. I think it's code like F81.81 if anyone wants to get really technical. But 
Yeah, it's so it's it's not even called dysgraphia. I'll often put like in little parentheses dysgraphia and then write a little definition about what dysgraphia Agreed. is. Read now. With this being said, well, the insurance companies doesn't like to recognize it. Um, it is something where schools actually do like knowing dysgraphia because that does change. Yeah. It is an important piece of information for learning purposes and how to help that child be able to. Because what I often try try I always explain it as Caleb has a lot of ideas in his mind, but you'll never be able to understand the depth of his knowledge because he does have expressive language processing issues. So his ability to even articulate auditorily and get out in the correct sequential order um, verbally is limited, but then also his, when he has to handwrite it out to you, you get, uh, it's just very, incomplete, brief, and a lot of times, I guess it's just lacking detail really is the best way of um, describing it. Mm -hmm. But the typewritten is just a much better auditorily. If it's something he's really interested in, like every time he does social studies and Elisa can attest to this because she, some of his goals are related to just being able to read and follow instructions. So she ends up having to participate in some of his his science and social studies, but it's so funny because when it's social studies related, it has to do with some sort of people or civilization. He just can go to town and repeat all of the necessary information. And so he can verbally do that. But then when you get to something that's more complex or, you know, where there's a lot of inferencing, then that's Mm -hmm. where it's like, it starts the inferencing where he has to inference. Okay. So why do you feel like this civilization impacted this next civilization? He's just like, I got nothing. If it, unless it was printed somewhere, I I don't have that information because inferencing is still very difficult, but hands Mm -hmm. down typewriting is his best way of being able to convey all of his thoughts. It comes out better than verbalization and then certainly handwriting. Now, here's a question. We didn't really get to this. Why is it that some some speech language pathologist researchers don't believe that central auditory processing disorder is a thing? Is it because they just think it's part of what ADHD is and nobody is concerned about? Why is ADHD like so prevalent? Um, or so is there a, a definitive piece that kind of divides the two camps as to whether or not they think it's a real thing or not a real thing? Or is it really kind of the debate is still out? I think the debate is still out. I, I have no idea why some people decide something it's real or not. I don't know. I like my, I, and we were talking about this earlier. My background um, as an undergraduate is actually in international politics. So I'm very much in the school of like, you can make people believe anything and you can find evidence for anything that you want. Um, and so, so I, I approach, you know, even something like, you know, we call it speech and hearing sciences. This is a science. This is part of a medical field of like, you know, there, there can be evidence for almost anything that you want. And it's just kind of like, I think seeing it for yourself, you know, is, is part of it of like, you know, you, like you personally have had experience with a child that inexplicably just isn't understanding the world around them. And for, you know, no other reason. Yeah. So I I think that, that, that life experience definitely can shape, shape people's acceptance or lack of acceptance of different, um, different concepts. So what I'm hearing from you is we need to just continue to follow the debate on central auditory processing disorder or 
or cap D is what you, cap D, um, yeah. cap D to find out kind of where it goes, because, you know, it's the same sort of thing when, when we're talking about cap D or central auditory processing disorder. And you think about sensory processing disorder, there are still doctors out there that do not believe that sensory processing disorder is a thing. My children's mm-hmm. um, pediatrician was one of those providers. Unfortunately, he's passed away, but he was of the older you know, generation as a pediatrician that felt that it was literally bad science. And that's what he told me because when Caleb was born and he was starting to present with some of the same challenges as his brother, Isaac. I wanted a referral for occupational therapy because of the sensory processing issues that he had. And he flat out told me and gave me uh, medical um, publications that he had, you know, that he had access to of why sensory processing disorder was bad science. And that he, as a pediatrician, his job was to be kind of the gatekeeper on, you know, making sure that insurance companies weren't spending unnecessary dollars on things that quote unquote was witch science and, or, you know, witch doctor um, material. And so we had an agreement and this is, this is a true story, Alicia. He gave me his medical journals. He wanted me to read about why um, sensory processing disorder was bad science. I then said, I will read your articles, your journals. I would like you to read the out of sync child. Um, And then you, you know, you read this book, I'll read your journals and then we'll come back and talk about it. So we both did. So, and it was good because I at least understood where he was coming from. So I think that's really important. He read that book and he authorized Caleb to have 12 occupational therapy sessions, which was something where his clinic at the time wanted to frame it. If it didn't violate HIPAA, they wanted to frame it because they had never, ever, ever seen him give in on ever allowing a child to have occupational therapy for sensory processing disorder. So like I said, there's just different schools of thought. And again, you can, as you know, you're right, when you're talking about political science background, you can convince people there's an argument for anything. And so that was how I took it. I think with that being said, most current doctors of today recognize sensory processing disorder. So that is kind of a thing of the past where I think there's more and more good uh, research out there that shows that sensory processing disorder is a legitimate, you know, condition that needs to be treated by children. But just keep that in mind on when we hear about central auditory processing disorder, it's kind of that same, it's the next step of, of the debate of, you know, is this a thing or is it not a thing? So we'll just keep watching that. I think with that too, you know, with these different diagnoses that are maybe, you know, considered more controversial, if you're like looking at this diagnosis and recognizing a pattern that is reflective of yourself and your child, and it is meaningful and giving you hope to be like, yes, I think my child has auditory, you know, has this central auditory processing disorder and there's treatment for it. And there's things that we can do and think about, like, obviously, you know, put on your, your critical thinking hat when you're looking at all of that, but also if that is what is giving, giving you hope to move forward at the end of the day, like that's who, who am I to tell you that that's not true? Well, and the thing is, this was this one doctor that I had, I could go and find a different pediatrician that would have said, yes, absolutely. From what the re- journals I have read, there is a lot of evidence on sensory processes. So here's the referral. So if you are really identifying, and this really sounds like it's applies to you and your child, find a provider that is on board and has done some continuing education on that topic that actually believes that it's, it's, it's worth pursuing. And, and so there's ways around it. That's the thing I always tell families, you have the right to change providers. um, If you're not getting the support and the validation that you need. 
And so, you know, and, and so keep that in mind as well. We were going to talk about body language real quick. And before we hit the record button, because I like to kind of, you know, we like to hash this out and just so that you are aware of what I'm going to ask you, but we were talking about body language. And one of the things that you said, why is body language so hard? And we were just talking about the fact that there's just so much that goes into it. There is context and inferencing, which as you know, inferencing can be very challenging for kiddos on the autism spectrum. And so there's just so much to it. And I even had told you, Alicia, that Caleb's not a big fan of body language. And it depends on the thing. He, he You are one of his, you are in the close bubble to him. He adores oh. you. He, he is sad that he can't see you. So you are definitely one of his close like people. And so his willingness to observe your body language and take those cues is much different than someone else. Like, you know, he has some new teachers this year and he doesn't know them well enough or like them yet enough to care what their body language is telling him. So really it is situational a bit for Caleb because the closer you are to his like, you know, inner circle, the more he's willing to invest in trying to learn body language and using inferencing to try and figure out what some of those body language cues mean. But there's lots of factors. Body language is really important. And and again, you know, we could sit here and hash out an entire podcast about body language and and the merits of it and the challenges, but um, it really is important. I think, you know, trying to teach them to interpret body language and use body language is important. I mean, would you agree or am I just, is this me trying to get Caleb to fit into that round peg more than I should? I mean, I don't know, maybe I have unrealistic expectations. Wouldn't be the first time, right, Alicia? (laughs) No, (laughs) I think that we live in a world where body language is something that's important. I mean, this is the same, you know, thing that I feel about like when, when you have dyslexia and reading is really hard. Yeah, I, we would love all day to just not have to read and to use all these different accommodations. But at the end of the day, like you need to be able to read street signs. You need to be able to read a menu. So like you have to be able to do these things functionally just for ease of life. If you know, if nothing else. Yeah. And I, I think with body language, like we were talking about earlier, you know, I've been kind of mulling over why it's so challenging. I think it's also challenging because even within the United States or even within Washington state, culturally, we have different things that are acceptable and unacceptable body language. Like I know for myself, I am incredibly sensitive to body language. And so having someone who I even perceive as being like, oh, well, that person seems physically standoffish. I do not like them. Um, You know, it's something like I'm, you know, the other end of the spectrum where I'm like hyper aware of body language. And I'm, you know, you guys, I'm an incredibly expressive person too, like physically very expressive. My emotions are on my face pretty much all the time and having to learn how to control that so that, you know, I appear professional when I need to be, it's it's important. (laughs) When she needs to be. Um, Although you work with children, so it probably, they have less, they don't care as much. Yeah, that's true. And I think with kids too, it's that modeling, right? It's, I'm, I'm doing a lot of modeling with just my communication. I'm sure if any parents of kids that I treat besides, you know, you are listening to this, they're like, Alicia does a lot of chit chat. Um, that chit chat is for good reason. We're practicing yeah. pragmatic skills during that chit chat. I'm taking data on, you know, I asked them a question and they told me about something that was completely unrelated to whatever that question was, or I asked them a question and they took five seconds to tune in and answer. Like those are important pieces of information because then we go back and we talk about those pieces and we problem solve those pieces. And, you know, it's it's like figuring out, well, is it 
an attention issue? Is it a word finding issue? Is it um, a motor planning issue? Is it, you know, whatever it is that's causing that kind of difference in pragmatic communication? And I think with pragmatic communication or with that body language piece, like we had said earlier, it's so transient and it's so subtle and it's so fast. Like if you think about written language compared to oral language, when we're having a verbal conversation, it's like there and it's gone. Um, Right. But if you're reading something, you can go back and reread it. And with body language, it's even faster than that oral conversation. So your ability to attend to all of that information and sort through and kind of going back to that concept of working memory. If I'm having difficulty just listening to what you're saying and understanding it, then paying attention to your body language might be like a whole additional level of things that like, I just cannot process. Oh, that's so true. And, you know, we didn't start adding the body language piece. So we play this game. It's not, you know, at least that you work on some of these pragmatic pieces during his sessions, but like the body language piece is something that we've been implicitly teaching for years. So it's the, you know, what's the message of my face right now? What's the message of my body language? And then it's like, I don't know. Okay, well, look around me, like look around this general area. What could I be looking at with my eyes that would like explain my body language? Because Mm -hmm. I really feel strongly that he needs to understand those things. And what's funny is, is that over the years, it has actually helped two things. One is that Caleb will say at times, mom, I don't understand the message of your face. So that tells me, number one, I got to look at my face and see what this is communicating. Cause I do believe that <laughs> I, I'm a very expressive person too, in part, because I've had two children with autism. So I have to be very expressive. So he will say, I don't, what's the message of your face. And then it's a good conversation, but it's nice to know with his close people that he's actually trying to pay attention and he's trying to learn, you know, giving those context, that's that inferencing piece too, where it's like, you know, look around me what could be, what could explain the message of my face. Um, But what's nice to know is him and I were watching the show. It was Gordon Ramsay's like Hell's Kitchen or something, or it was the, I don't know if it was Hell's Kitchen, but it was where he goes around the U.S. and he's looking at these restaurants in trouble. And then he basically has like, you know, 24 hours or I don't know, 36 hours to kind of like help them get back on track. And what was so funny, he still talks about it to this day. So we're watching the show together. This is one of our favorite shows that we watch together. And then as Gordon Ramsay is showing the guests in the restaurant, because he'll stand up in the middle of the restaurant, take off his disguise and say, everybody put their forks down and like watch some of this footage of what you're eating. And then of course, like they zoom in on some of these people that are sitting in the restaurant and like Caleb's just like, oh mom, like look at that face. Mom, look at that face. And it's a great show. Like I said, if nothing else, but to show some of those like those like body language in terms of like, what do you think those people are feeling right now? He'll like the favorite one that he still brings up and he imitates the face is the police officer that had just been sitting in there and eating. And then, of course, finds out that his seafood had been like on the floor and, you know, in the in the oh. kitchen. Anyway, but again, those are really good exercises outside of, you know. Obviously, when you're in speech language, you know, pathology services, when you're seeing an SLP, they work on some of these things. But there are other ways that you can implicitly teach how to read facial features and body language and things. It just takes time to actually apply it and like teach Mm -hmm. them about it. And anyway, that Gordon Ramsay show is actually a really good one when you're talking because he could care less about strangers faces, if I'm being honest. But that is a really good one where he's watching the show and he's starting to figure out some of these like, you know, oh, I think they're like, that's their disgusted face. And it's like, you bet, like, because 
you know, they were eating food off of a floor. But um, so that's kind of my two cents on how as a parent can, you know, work with them on some of these things, but it takes years to really perfect. And you and I have made miscues from time to time, even as an adult, like it's always difficult to always read people's body language. Like you said, like you can immediately get turned off by somebody just by their body language. And oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and knowing how close to stand to people or, I mean, and even things that are subtle like that, or one of the things that I, similar to what you were talking about is I played a game with kids where I'm like, what do you think I'm paying attention to right now? Oh, I and love it's, that game. you know, looking at this, looking at that, looking at that. And, and, you know, they, they learn to kind of tune in, but then I'd like to turn it around of like, when we are working together and you are looking over here, what do I think you are paying attention to? Yeah. Is it me? No. <laughs> yes. Um, but that's that perspective, self-perspective. And unless they're implicitly mm-hmm. taught that it just goes over their head and they're not aware of, you know, again, Caleb has a hard time. He knows how things affect him, but he's mm-hmm. only concerned about how things affect people he cares about. He could care less about like externally, like he doesn't care what the person at the grocery store necessarily um, is feeling, which again, is all things we're trying to coach him on so that he can be his best self and be able to, you know, he may never be able to be a hundred percent reading body language, but if we can get him to like 70%, that would be you know, awesome. Like Mm -hmm. I said, I don't think there's any such thing as a hundred percent with body language because Lord knows I've made, you know, still at my age, um, in my forties, I still mess it up. But, um, are there any other things that you do when you're talking about body language that you can think of that are good activities? I love the, what do you think I'm paying attention to game? That's amazing. (laughs) In fact, now that you say that, because I know you do that with Caleb sometimes, because, you know, I sit in, in a lot of his sessions, I should start doing that to him outside of speech, just to kind of get him to cue in a little bit more, but is there anything else you can think of for body language? I think, you know, as if, you know, if we're thinking about like, what are some things that parents can do at home with their own kids? I think one is just being aware of your own body language, which, you know, a lot, we do it, but we're not necessarily thinking about it. So like thinking about what you're doing, thinking about what your child's doing and how they fit together. You can also sabotage things. So like, you know, saying something that's like happy, but having a face that doesn't match what you're saying. That is or so true, like, Alicia. Really standing too close to people. That's something that it's, it's, I've done it a couple of times with a couple of students that have that personal bubble issue. But then when you do it back to them, they're like, why are you here? And you're like, well, okay. That is so true. Now I'm going to do what Caleb does to me for the longest time. He would do this. Hey mom. So he puts his forehead (laughs) to my forehead and then he would talk. And I was like, and when he was littler, I would just let it go because I was actually in my mind, I was feeling like the reason why he's doing it is because he's so excited about something he wants to tell me that he gets up close where our foreheads are going because then he only, he doesn't see my eyes. It's just like one eye and it's less facial stuff to deal with as he's telling me this story. But that's just not something that you can do your whole life and have it be normal. Like a seventh grader getting <laughs> right in my forehead. It's like, I don't need you that close to me yeah. to have this conversation. But when he was younger, 
if he was really excited about something, he's going to come up and he st- you know, puts forehead to forehead as he's telling me this story. And so we've worked beyond that, but you're absolutely right. When you turn it around, sometimes I will say, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And so all of my words are this. And he's like, mom, I feel like you're being sarcastic. Yes, Caleb, mm-hmm. I am being sarcastic. Why do you think I'm using sarcasm right now? So you're right. That is a good game to play because you know, he's getting better at being able to say, mom, I don't think that's really what you mean. And it's like, okay, let's talk about that because you're right. And I do it a lot, obviously too, with my teenagers, my, his brothers that are two 17 year old teenagers, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yay. And then he's like, (laughs) mom, I feel like you're being sarcastic to Tyler and that you really don't want him or you really aren't excited about blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yes, Caleb, you're right. If only your brothers would understand that now. Actually, it's really, they understand. They just don't care. They just don't care. They just don't care. My mom, I feel like really did a great job at making sure my sister and I had some pragmatic skills, like just hammered into our brains. But like a lot of what she did was just doing what we did back to us. And so like, if we're sitting at the table slumped over, she would then mimic that body language and mimic the tone of voice. And like that more than anything, you're like, oh, okay. And, you know, I I have to say in in my speech language pathology journey, I haven't seen any, you know, evidence-based research that tells you that's like Just mimic them and see what happens. But I have to say, I use it. And it's, it's pretty effective when someone comes in and they're just like, Oh, what do you want? And you just do that back to them. And then they're like, I'm like, this is what you look like right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have done that to my, my kids just coming home from like coming in the door and just throwing all of my stuff on the garbage, eating a piece of gum and just throwing the wrapper on the garbage. I just finished eating like, you know, some like chips and then I threw the bag on the floor and they're just like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm doing what you guys do in my house. And it's like, see how absurd it is when you're watching me do it. But Mm -hmm. yet I'm buying chip wrappers and shoes all over the place. But like when parents walk in and do that, it's like, oh my God, they've lost their mind. Um, So yeah, I do that too. But, you know, I keep telling them I'm going to put it on TikTok because, you know, that anytime (laughs) I threaten to put anything on TikTok as a parent, they're just horrified because that's their platform these days. So anyway, well, one more thing I'm going to just talk about real quick. And this is just a real quick conversation is um, one of my things that I've term that I've heard in SLP world that I don't like, and I know that you guys are transitioning away, but maybe some of the old school SLPs are still utilizing it is I hate, I do not like the term nonverbal because I don't know about you, uh, Alicia, but there are very, I think I only have two kiddos that I would say are close to being really, truly nonverbal. Um, a lot of them have a lot of, of utterances, articulations, and, and so a term that I know that is becoming more widely used is low verbal. And so that's kind of that, is that, is that really kind of the transition from nonverbal to low verbal? Because I don't know about you, maybe I'm just wrong, but I just have not seen evidence of very many nonverbal kiddos with autism. Do you feel like that's true? I do. And I feel like, you know, what nonverbal kind of brings up, if you just heard that term, it's like, this person isn't communicating at all. And whether someone's communicating with words or with, you know, a picture exchange system or with an AAC or with physical gestures or with body language, like they're still communicating. Um, So I like that, that low verbal or 
you know, I don't, I unfortunately don't have another term that's, you know, that would even, you know, go further in explaining that. Yeah. Yeah. Minimally verbal or low verbal, I think are the two where I'm like, okay, that feels more comfortable. Low verbal Mm -hmm. is easier to say versus minimally. That's one of those things. That's a lot of, of syllables you got to put in the right order. So when we're talking about apraxia, minimal (laughs) would be one of those difficult words, even as an adult to say. So low verbal, I feel like is more appropriate. And so like my personal hope is, is that we move away from that nonverbal John, my husband, John's son, uh, who's 17 is classified as nonverbal. So whenever I say that, I always use my finger quote, you know, classified mm-hmm. as nonverbal, but he does, ver- he is, he is, has communication. So I consider him low verbal. He mostly yeah. just, you know, reiterate and echolalia is another term in, in speech pathology world mm-hmm. and echolalia. Would you mind describing what that term means? Sure. So echolalia is, I think just repeating what you've heard or, you know, just saying things. Yeah. Parroting, saying back what you, what you heard. So understanding, um, Johnson, he's 17 now and he's been echolalic for like his entire life. And so most of his communication is just parroting back what he hears. And I would have told you early on that I think it's exactly that there's really not a lot of like communication intent with his echolalia, but now as a a young man, there actually is. So, you know, I can tell, you know, when he's looking at me and parroting back, like he'll just repeat what he hears, you know, going to go to the park going to go to the park. If I say, Hey, do you want to grab a snack first? Then he'll look at me and say, you want to grab a snack first? Because so there is some just in his body posturing. And then sometimes Mm -hmm when he's trying, when he'll just repeat what he's hearing, but if he hear, if he's repeating something that he doesn't like, he'll say not go to the park, you know, so he'll Mm -hmm. he'll put the word not, and then repeat back exactly what he heard as though to give us the cue, like, no, I'm not on board for that. So Mm -hmm. over time, I mean, Cooper's 17 years old, and this has been, I mean, like I said, 90% of his communication is just parroting back what he's hearing, but there is some communication, you know, expressive communication in his echolalia, but it's taken a long time. And Mm -hmm. also you have to be around him and know him enough to know that when he's looking at you and saying something, that he actually, that's his, you know, his means for communication. And he will spontaneously come up and say, could we get in the hot tub? And it's like, awesome. So it's, it's evolved over the years, but it's difficult. I would say, you know, still with him, you know, he paces, you know, most of his day and, you know, still 80% of just his utterances is just is scripting and echolalia but there can be some functional language in echolalia so just to let you know oh, definitely yeah all right well I think that's about it I think we did a nice job talking about uh expressive and receptive language and a little bit of body language in there too we're going to go ahead and put your clinic information in the show notes so that people can find you again I have people listen to these podcasts and then reach out about doing assessments and so that is something you know you are an SLP and you can do assessments for many different communication struggles not all of them of course like you were saying insurance companies necessarily want to to pay for now with that being said, in some of the assessments that you do, you would automatically be able to, in in assessing Caleb, it wasn't difficult for you to look at some of his writing samples and see that, oh, we have some dysgraphia things going on here. So we didn't just say, hey, Alicia, we want you to screen him for dysgraphia. You were actually doing a full assessment on his expressive and receptive language processing abilities. And then that was when some of these other pieces come out. Yep. 
And that's what I'm doing uh, now. I have a couple different means to assess. I have articulation and phonological processing. So those expressive language pieces like we talked about earlier. I have, again, another receptive phonological process, well, mixed, where you are listening and manipulating words. So that's a really, you know, high marker for a condition like dyslexia. And then I just have my full language battery, which is looking at reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And then the, the other part of assessment is our observational and parent contact and things like that too. So also, you know, before I see any clients, whether they're clients I've known previously, or if they're brand new to niche therapy, I put about an hour to half a on a complimentary consultation so that we can talk about your child, what you're experiencing and what we want to do moving forward and whether it's worth moving forward together. If one, we feel like we're a good fit, you know, for me as your therapist, and then also, you know, if this seems like it's going to, you know, be worth the financial commitment to moving forward with therapy as well. Yes, which is that's what I love. I love that. So, all right. Well, I am going to go ahead and wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Be sure to reach out to us or Alicia if you have any questions on this particular topic and we will catch you next time. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.